This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Britain, 5th century A.D. A great gathering takes place at St. Paul's Cathedral. Knights and kings had traveled long and far, all hoping to emerge victorious in a spectacle that would define an age. In the churchyard, a sword had famously been stuck into an anvil, which was trapped within a mighty stone. Whoever managed to pull this sword out of the stone would be deemed the next king of Britain. All those who had tried so far had failed. That is, until... A 15-year-old boy named Arthur, a blonde-haired, unassuming young squire, steps up to the anvil. He wraps both his hands around the sword's golden hilt, gathers all his strength, and pulls. King Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table are familiar figures in bedtime stories throughout the Western world, and it's easy to understand why. The tales are filled with wizards and magic, prophecy and men with the strength of gods, the stuff of fairy tales. But is it possible that these stories are more than that? Is it possible that these stories are true? Could the mythical King Arthur have once lived? Is there any proof of his existence? Is Arthur real? In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this podcast, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every week, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm your host, Molly. This is our first episode on the mystery of King Arthur. We'll be breaking down Arthurian legend, separating fact from fiction, in order to answer a question that has puzzled historians for ages. Was there a real King Arthur? If you like the show, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast directory. A new episode comes out every Thursday. And while you're there, we'd greatly appreciate a five-star review. It seems simple, but it really helps. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, on Twitter at Parcast Network, and at Parcast.com. 
From oral tradition to best-selling fantasy novels, the legend of King Arthur has prevailed over centuries. But what's most amazing is that these legends might be steeped in truth. Arthur may have been a real person, worthy of remembering through the centuries. But why, of all the people who came before and after him, does history choose to remember Arthur alone in this way? Why has his legend persisted? And where did the legend come from? In part one, we'll be discussing the legend of King Arthur, examining how his story has been passed down through the ages, and pointing out discrepancies that may have arisen with each new version of his life. In part two, we'll comb through history to find out which parts of the legend are true and discover if there was a real-life King Arthur. I've had discussions with tradition. It's like, no, but King Arthur did this and did that. And so, some people think it's fact. Some people think that Arthur Guinevere answered, no, this is what happened. And you say, and, and you know, once you talk to him, you say, at the end of the day, it's an interpretation of a story. It's as valid as any, and that's the story he wanted to tell, and that's, that's what we're doing. According to the historians who believe King Arthur existed, Arthur was born between the late 5th and early 6th centuries AD. Thus, his legend can be viewed as taking place in the same time period, at the turn of the 6th century. The legend begins with Arthur's father, Uther Pendragon, the King of Britain. While at war with the Duke of Cornwall, Uther became enamored with Lady Egraine, the wife of his enemy. Uther snuck into Egraine's chamber and forced himself upon her. Nine months later, Arthur was born the son to King Uther. The illegitimate son. Uther only had one other child, Arthur's half-sister, Morgos. Uther's advisor, Merlin, a legendary wizard with a knack for foresight, knew that King Uther was near the end of his life. Merlin sought to protect Arthur so that he would not be slaughtered by another seeking to claim the throne. Keeping Arthur's identity secret, Merlin sent Arthur to live with Sir Ector until he came of age. King Uther died shortly thereafter. Fifteen years passed by until Merlin announced the great tournament of the Sword in the Stone. Now a young squire, Arthur came upon the Sword in the Stone almost by complete accident. He had lost his master's sword and was looking for any sword that he could use to replace it. As touched on earlier, Arthur miraculously pulled the sword out of the stone and was subsequently crowned as king. Upon becoming king of Britain, Arthur faced immediate conflict from both within and without. Foreign invaders, a Germanic tribe known as the Saxons, already posed a serious threat to Britain's sovereign rule. Meanwhile, a rebellion of 11 lesser kings was forming, all of whom opposed Arthur's right to the throne. Still just a 15-year-old boy, Arthur was hardly equipped to handle such fearsome opposition. He needed help. Merlin took Arthur to meet the Lady of the Lake, a sorceress who ultimately grants Arthur the Excalibur, a mythical sword unlike any other in existence. According to legend, whomever wielded Excalibur on the battlefield would be made nearly invincible. Now just 16 years old, Arthur prepared for war against the 11 rebellious kings. Several factors contributed to Arthur overcoming the 11 kings. First, with the Excalibur in his possession, Arthur was a fearsome warrior. Second, 
Merlin helped Arthur recruit an army of brave and loyal knights. Third, Arthur employed ruthless battle tactics, such as attacking the enemy forces at night while they slept. After prevailing over the Eleven Kings, Arthur received a mysterious visitor at his court in Carleone. The woman, Morgos, was Arthur's half-sister. Unaware of their familial bond, Arthur slept with Morgos, who later gave birth to their illegitimate son, Mordred. Meanwhile, Merlin had been under the enchantment of a sorceress named Nimue. By the time he became aware of Arthur's seduction by his half-sister, he was too late to stop it. Nine months later, Mordred was born, Arthur's own illegitimate son. Merlin foresaw that Mordred would bring an end to Arthur's kingdom. Seeking to undo the prophecy, Arthur sent Mordred to die at sea. However, against all odds, Mordred survived. After successfully defending his kingdom from the Saxons and the Eleven Kings, Arthur established a new court that would reflect his growing idealism, gallantry, chivalry, and righteousness. This court was known as Camelot. For centuries, both historians and archaeologists have tried to uncover the real-life location of Camelot. Historian John Leland presents a compelling argument that Camelot could have been referring to Cadbury Castle in the south of England. Excavations from the site suggest that the Cadbury Castle was refortified during the 6th century. This would be during the height of the Arthurian era. It's very possible that Camelot was a real place. It may not prove outright that Arthur existed, but it helps support the argument. At Camelot, Arthur fell in love with a woman named Guinevere and quickly moved to marry her. As a wedding gift, Guinevere's father gifted Arthur the legendary round table that would become one of the greatest symbols of his rule. The table was famously round to imply the equality amongst those gathered. As Arthur's rule neared its height, Mordred returned bearing a false identity. Otherwise, Arthur may have been reluctant to let his ill-fated son back into his good graces. Gaining favor with Arthur, Mordred would wait for the opportune moment to exact his revenge upon his father. Meanwhile, another tragedy was brewing, that of Lancelot and Guinevere. Lancelot was Arthur's most trusted knight, which is what made his affair with Guinevere all the more devastating. Seizing his opening, Mordred made the affair known to Arthur. Lancelot subsequently fled to his home in France, and Arthur pursued him with his army. With Arthur drawn out of the kingdom, Mordred took another step forward in his devious plan. He spread lies that his father, King Arthur, had died and claimed the throne for himself. While in battle, Arthur received a message that his son Mordred had usurped his throne. Arthur turned his forces around at once and prepared to face Mordred at the Battle of Camlin. This was to become Arthur's final battle. The 10th century Annales Cambriae, or the Annals of Wales, documents a battle that occurred in Camlan in the year 537 AD, which would place the battle squarely in the Arthurian era. In addition, the text claims that two combatants named Arthur and Mordred fought each other at the battle, lending further evidence that Arthur may have in fact existed. 
It wasn't until both forces had mostly perished that Arthur found Mordred on the field of battle. They traded blow after blow. Until Arthur thrust his sword through Mordred's body. But in a final act of treachery, Mordred struck Arthur across the head in his waning breaths. It would prove to be a mortal wound. With his life draining from him, Arthur ordered that his sword Excalibur be returned to the Lady of the Lake. King Arthur was then sent adrift to Avalon, a mystical island frequently associated with the afterlife and the conclusion of the Arthurian tale. King Arthur was finally laid to rest at Avalon, where it was prophesied that he would one day return to Britain in its greatest time of need. Hence, Arthur became known as Britain's once and future king. That's quite a saga. Magical swords, wizards. It's no wonder this tale has lasted through the ages. The legend of King Arthur has endured over hundreds of years, passed down from generation to generation, and has achieved a stature that is almost unparalleled in Western civilization. Is it possible this legend was based on something real? Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And now let's continue the story. There is, in fact, historical evidence to suggest that King Arthur was real. However, the evidence supporting his existence is not without its share of mysteries. As we mentioned earlier, the historians who believe in a real King Arthur date his birth between the late 5th and early 6th centuries. This would place Arthur during a period known as the Dark Ages lasting from approximately 500 A.D. after the fall of the Roman Empire to about 1000 A.D., the Dark Ages are aptly named because of a puzzling lack of recorded history that survived from that era. The period has become literally dark to historians. Some critics doubt Arthur's existence because few historical documents had been written about him during the time that he lived. However, The broader truth is that barely any recorded history survived from this era as a whole. At the beginning of the Dark Ages, a politically unstable period, Britain employed a feudal system in which very few commoners learned how to read or write. The sparse literature that survived the era largely came from monks and church authorities. Keep in mind, this would have been roughly 1,000 years before the revolution of the printing press. Despite the lack of recorded history, the few sources that did survive point to a Saxon occupation of Britain during the 5th century. 
That was the same Saxon invasion that we see at the beginning of the Arthurian legend. The Saxons were Arthur's first opponent as king. An ancient text, the Chronica Gallica of 452, records that as early as 441 AD, the British provinces had suffered various defeats and misfortunes and had been reduced to Saxon rule. Could this point to there being some truth to the Arthurian legend? The 6th century monk Gildas also identifies the Saxon invasion, writing, The Saxons have dipped their red and savage tongue in the Western Ocean. In his historical account, Gildas also makes reference to the Battle of Baden. This matches the Arthurian legend, where Arthur is believed to have won a great victory over the Saxons at Baden. Gildas writes, quote, The siege of Baden Hill took place 44 years and one month after the landing of the Saxons. If the Saxons arrived in Britain during the middle of the 5th century, this would place the Battle of Baden in the correct timeline during Arthur's life. However, Gildas makes no explicit reference to King Arthur in connection with the battle, nor does he mention Arthur anywhere in his writings. In fact, Arthur's name doesn't appear in any historical text until roughly 300 years after his death. Yes, but again, this speaks to the lack of historical documents from the Dark Ages. Historian and author Nancy Mason Bradbury posits that Arthur had instead persisted through oral tradition rather than a strictly written one. The 9th century Welsh poem, Iagadadan, supports this theory. The poem, of which there is only one surviving manuscript today, details a heroic warrior who slew 300 men in battle. The poem goes on to proclaim of this soldier that he was no Arthur. The text treats Arthur as if he were a well-known figure. As if he were a man who needed no introduction. This supports the theory that Arthur may have already long existed in oral tradition. The 9th century poem also begins with the following preface, quote, This is Egadodden, an iron sang it, end quote. The words sang it may simply be defining Aniron as the poem's author. However, the words may also be evoking the oral tradition, that the poem was passed down by song or word of mouth. While the poem's claim that he was no Arthur is promising, it's far from definitive proof that Arthur ever existed. So let's look at some of the other mentions of Arthur throughout history. Around 830 AD, several hundred years after Arthur would have died, Another text entitled History of the Britons famously listed 12 battles that a man named Arthur had fought in and won. The author Nanias writes, quote, Arthur fought, together with the kings of the British, but he was their leader in battle. This is the second historical account in which Arthur appears. Though Arthur fought with the kings of Britain, notice he's not defined as a king himself. The source's original Latin, Dux Bellorum, translates more specifically to military commander. Arthur's status as a strong warrior doesn't mean he didn't exist. However, it raises questions about when he became king, or if a real-life Arthur was ever named king at all. In recounting the battles, Nennius writes, quote, The twelfth battle was on Baden Hill, and in it, 960 men fell by a single charge of Arthur's." End quote. Notice the mention of Baden Hill. 
This is the same battle which the monk Gildas detailed 250 years prior in the ruins of Britain. Still, some historians doubt the validity of Nennius' history of the Britons. Like the story about the vanquishing of 960 men from a single charge? I can see how that would be hard to take as historical fact. Exaggeration was a common element in the depictions of war during this time. A proper analog could be found in the legend of Beowulf, which also emerged from the Dark Ages and was believed to have survived through oral tradition. For example, Beowulf was rumored to have killed a deadly monster using only his bare hands. Beowulf was also praised for being stronger than 1,000 horses. The exaggeration that Arthur killed 960 men in a single charge only adds further credence to the belief that Arthur's story may have evolved through a similar mode of oral tradition. Professor Kenneth Jackson investigated the 12 battles Nennius associates with Arthur. Using linguistic analysis, Jackson identified four real-life locations in which the battles may have taken place. He concludes that the underlying difficulty in identifying battle locations surprisingly works in favor of the argument that Arthur did exist. Jackson suggests that if Nennius's account had been fabricated, he likely would have used locations concurrent with the 9th century. However, it appears that Nennius was attempting to be faithful to the older Welsh sources, which contained his source material. It is also promising that another text, written more than 100 years after Nennius's History of the Britons, references Arthur in connection with two key battles. The Annals of Wales, dated to the 10th century, claims that during the Battle of Baden, Arthur was seen carrying the cross of Jesus Christ on his shoulders. However, historians are skeptical that this cross-carrying ever took place. Still, this is the third historical claim verifying the Battle of Baden and Arthur's presence there. If Arthur didn't exist, is his clear association with this battle just a mere coincidence? Since the Annals of Wales was written in the 10th century, so long after all these events had taken place, we can't be sure where exactly it's getting its information. Is it merely recapitulating what Nennius had described over 100 years earlier? Or has it discovered the Battle of Baden from another source, perhaps one that delves further into Welsh roots and relies more on oral tradition? The second battle reference is perhaps more significant than the first. As we mentioned earlier in this episode, the annals date the Battle of Camlan as 537 AD. According to the Arthurian legend, this was the final battle Arthur ever fought in, and the date makes sense with his proposed timeline. In accordance with the legend, the Annals of Wales describes the Battle of Camlan as the place in which Arthur and Mordred perished. Little information is given about Mordred here, as it pertains to the legend. We don't know if Mordred and Arthur fought against each other, or if they were on the same side. Additionally, the text does not mention any familial connection between the two. However, it's significant that Arthur and Mordred are spoken of in the same breath. It's clear that they died in the same battle, but the text implies a further connection. Many soldiers had died at the Battle of Camlan. Why are Arthur and Mordred specifically grouped together? Though the Annals of Wales may raise more questions than it answers, does it help prove that Arthur truly existed? Following the Annals of Wales, 
the Norman invasion of 1066 AD sparked a rebirth of Celtic literature. The invasion inspired a renewal in Celtic pride and its long cultural heritage that had suddenly come under attack. The Norman invasion of 1066 recalled the Saxons' invasion in the 5th century. Once again, the whole of Britain was being occupied by foreign invaders. Perhaps this inspired the Britons to look into their past and recall the heroes of old. This period, right after the Norman invasion, marks a significant leap forward in the Arthurian story. In the earlier accounts we have discussed, Arthur is referenced in connection with a number of significant battles and events. In the 12th century, Arthur becomes the central focus of the histories he appears in. Nowhere is this sentiment better reflected than in Geoffrey of Monmouth's History of the Kings of Britain. Written in 1138 AD, History of the Kings of Britain provides the first full-bodied account of Arthur's life. Geoffrey traced Arthur's lineage to his father, Uther Pendragon, detailing the unsavory tactics Uther used to seduce Arthur's mother, Lady Egraine. After Uther's death, Geoffrey describes Arthur during his coronation ceremony. Quote, Arthur was then 15 years old, but a youth of such unparalleled courage and generosity, joined with the sweetness of temper and innate goodness, as gained him universal love. End quote. This is the first time we've received any insight into Arthur's personality. Prior instances had stated only that Arthur was a great warrior who had thrived in many battles. Yet Geoffrey further humanizes Arthur, adding characteristics such as generosity and goodness. This was also the first time Arthur had been specifically referred to as a king. But do we know if Geoffrey's more in-depth portrayal is based on historical evidence? The answer is complicated. It may be nearly impossible to discern the exact sources for Geoffrey's text. Geoffrey himself claims that his history is based on an ancient book, that was given to him by the Archdeacon of Oxford. From Geoffrey's biography, we know that Geoffrey served for over 20 years as a master at the College of St. George in Oxford. It's highly plausible that he would have come into contact with the Archdeacon during this time. If Geoffrey's account can be supported, it would go a long way in verifying that King Arthur did exist. On the other hand, there's always the possibility that Geoffrey had fabricated the majority of his story. Interestingly, historians struggle to identify the ancient book Geoffrey claims his Arthurian legend was based on. One possible candidate the ancient book may have been referring to was Nineas's History of the Britons. After all, the works do share a nearly identical title. And Geoffrey certainly had made use of the twelve battles that Nineas had famously listed. Historians speculate that Gildas's 6th century work on the Saxon invasion, the ruin of Britain, and the annals of Wales of the 10th century may have served as source material as well. Another theory is that Geoffrey drew from a variety of source materials, not all of which were necessarily in written form. Indeed, Geoffrey wrote in the book's dedication that his aim was merely to provide a translation of the material he'd been given. Arthurian historians Elizabeth Archibald and Ad Pewter note that by the time of Geoffrey's writings, Arthur was already a larger-than-life figure. Arthur's legend may have evolved much like the Grimm's fairy tales. 
Both works endured long in folk history before they were ever translated to the page. Jeffrey's contributions may be similar to that of the brothers Grimm, who didn't invent the bulk of their stories, but rather curated them. But the brothers Grimm were dealing with fairy tales. We are dealing with a much more curious legend, a story which may have been rooted in reality. Is it possible that there is a kernel of truth to the stories about Arthur? We'll return to our story in just a moment from the Parcast Network. And now, let's continue the story. Written in 1138 AD, Geoffrey of Monmouth's History of the Kings of Britain provides a basic outline of the Arthurian tale we know today. However, Geoffrey's text is not without its key differences from the modern-day version. One such discrepancy is that Geoffrey introduces the villainous Mordred as Arthur's nephew instead of as his illegitimate son. Yes, but Geoffrey of Monmouth is not inventing these characters so much as he is weaving them into a single narrative. In the 10th century Annals of Wales, Arthur and Mordred both perished together. Perhaps Geoffrey's reading into this earlier reference to suggest a familial connection. Or perhaps Geoffrey is again relying on an oral tradition, one which modern history has no access to. Either way, there's a clear historical precedent for both Arthur and Mordred before the time of Geoffrey's writings. Does the fact that Geoffrey furthered their stories lend further weight to the possibility of a real-life Arthur? Only 17 years later, in 1155 AD, the Norman poet Was translated Geoffrey's histories for his home country, France. Although the work was largely derivative of Geoffrey's, it contains the first reference to the round table. Was Was privy to information Geoffrey didn't have? Possibly, though a more likely explanation deals with the audience Was was writing for. This was at the beginning of an era when romances were gaining favor within the French court. Was may have embellished the round table to add an emphasis on courtly life that may have been lacking in Geoffrey's version. As we will see, many authors began to perceive the Arthurian legend through the lens of the time period in which they were writing. Inspired by Was, Robert de Boron provided the next significant entry into the Arthurian canon in approximately 1210 AD. In his book entitled Merlin, de Boron adds the sword in the stone episode to the Arthurian tale. The legend is growing. Writing around the same time as de Boron, the French author Chrétien de Troyes is famous for adding Lancelot to the narrative. However, much like Geoffrey of Monmouth, there's the possibility that de Troyes was essentially inventing these characters himself. Historian Richard White adds that French writers were naturally more derogatory towards Arthur because of his status as an English king. It's possible that de Troyes wanted to insert a distinctly French hero for his audiences. In many ways, Lancelot is the embodiment of that hero. He is an unparalleled knight who is ultimately the object of Guinevere's desire. However, it's also possible that Lancelot dates back to earlier works. Historians point to an earlier Welsh text, Coolwich and Olwen, as one possible place from which Lancelot may have emerged. Historians also posit that Lancelot may have arisen from the Welsh hero Chuch, who was known to have undertaken many quests and was highly skilled with a sword. In either case, 
The roots of these Arthurian characters seem to be heavily grounded in Welsh folklore. Following de Troyes' edition of Lancelot, all the different versions of Arthur's legend seem to agree on one key point. Lancelot's affair with Guinevere, who had first appeared in Geoffrey of Monmouth's History of the Kings of Britain. Studying their romantic interaction, historians suggest that Lancelot and Guinevere may have been inspired by another pair of star-crossed lovers, Tristan and Isolde. Interestingly, an eight-foot-tall ancient stone still stands today in South Cornwall, outside the town of Foy. Known as the Tristan Stone, it bears the inscription, Here lies Drustanus, the son of Cunomerus. Historians claim Drustanus is an early name for the Tristan of legend. The inscription dates back to the 6th century, the time of King Arthur. Is it possible that Tristan was really the legendary figure we now call Lancelot? Could this well-known 6th century hero have actually crossed paths with Arthur? After de Troyes, the next groundbreaking work in the Arthurian canon was released roughly 200 years later. Le Mort d'Arthur, or The Death of Arthur, was written in 1485 by Thomas Mallory. Mallory's version includes The Sword in the Stone, The Lady of the Lake, and The Quest for the Holy Grail. While The Lady of the Lake and the Holy Grail originated from earlier French writings, Mallory was the first to collect all these stories into a single narrative. Mallory also casts Mordred as Arthur's illegitimate son, which helps him frame Arthur as an epic tragedy. As the title suggests, Mallory chooses to focus on the death of Arthur rather than, say, the life of Arthur. Making Mordred the illegitimate son was crucial to this aim. Having Mordred arise from unknowing incest pushes Arthur into Oedipal territory. Arthur is aware of his fate, yet powerless to stop it. He is willfully blind to his actions. Combined with the betrayals of Lancelot and Guinevere, Arthur has become quite the tragic character. Is Mallory reinventing Arthur, or is he instead drawing on different stories that have also been passed down through oral tradition? So much has been said and written about Arthur by this point that it's become almost impossible to separate historical truth from fiction. Arthur may have once existed, but it's important to track how he has evolved over time in the historical and literary record. The further we move away from the first recordings of Arthur, the more Arthur's legend seems to take on fantastical elements. With each new version of Arthur, we see him becoming more of a literary figure than a historical one. This is exemplified in Lord Tennyson's The Idols of the King, written in the 19th century. Composed in flourishing blank verse, listen to how Tennyson describes Arthur on the field of battle. The world was all so clear about him that he saw the smallest rock far on the faintest hill, and even in high day the morning star. Interestingly, Tennyson stages the Battle of Camlan, Arthur's final confrontation with Mordred, on the land of Lyoness. According to legend, Lyoness, the sinking city, disappeared beneath the ocean in virtually a single night. Is it possible that Lyoness once existed? And if it did, how was it connected to a potential historical Arthur? Due to rising sea levels, many speculate that Lyoness was once a very real place along the Scilly Isles, 
In addition, archaeologists have uncovered an Iron Age hut beneath the waters, as well as pottery dating back to the 3rd and 4th centuries. There is even evidence of a drowned forest with tree stumps lodged into the sea. But then why wasn't Lioness mentioned in any of the earlier Arthurian tales? Given Tennyson's heavily artistic approach, it's conceivable that he was using the fabled city of Lioness as a mere backdrop, as a way of heightening the story's dramatic conclusion. Yet there are two rumors that link Lioness even closer to the Arthurian story. First, Lioness was believed to have sunk in the 6th century during the time of Arthur. This is consistent with the Arthurian timeline we've discussed, as well as the archaeological discoveries you just mentioned. Thus, it's possible Tennyson's account may have been more grounded in history than many historians give him credit for. Second, Lioness was said to be the birthplace of Tristan of the Tristan and Isolde love story. Again, we see Tristan factoring into the Arthurian tale. Is this a mere coincidence, or does it point to a deeper connection? Let's turn to the end of the Arthurian legend. After suffering a mortal wound, Arthur was sent to the mystical Isle of Avalon. Geoffrey of Monmouth first referred to Avalon as the Island of Apples in his 1138 text. Scholars speculate that Geoffrey may have used apples as a symbol to communicate great abundance. Accordingly, Avalon was perceived as a near heaven on earth, a place where great heroes, wizards, and sorcerers were laid to rest. Specifically, Avalon became famous as the final resting place for King Arthur. For centuries, Arthurian historians have debated the real-life location of this mythical island. King Edward II was even rumored to have financed his own expedition in the 12th century. However, many began to doubt the notion of a real-life Avalon. That is, until... Arthur's real-life tomb was dug up by a team of monks late in the 12th century. None of them could possibly be prepared for what they would discover inside. Did the monks finally uncover definitive proof to support the legend? Had they found the real King Arthur? Now that we've explored where King Arthur came from and how his stories evolved, in the next episode, we'll separate fact from fiction in order to answer the question that has lasted through the centuries. Did King Arthur truly exist? Don't forget to subscribe to Unexplained Mysteries on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every Thursday. And remember... Never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. Unexplained Mysteries is written by Stephen Lamb and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Mm-hmm.